Our sermon this morning comes from Mark chapter 10. It's on 846 of your pew Bible if you want to turn there. If you're new to Christianity, there's four Gospels. Mark was probably the first one written. And the Gospels are broken up today into these chapters. That's the big number you'll see on the page. In this case, number 10. And then they do verses by the little numbers. I don't want to assume people who don't, you know, are new to Christianity are going to understand this. It's kind of strange. But we're in Mark. We're in the 10th chapter. There's 16 chapters in Mark. And we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 45 in Mark chapter 10. Again, it's on page 846 in the little blue Bible in front of you. I'd love you to have that open if you can. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this opportunity uh, to take a few minutes now to hear from you through your word, we do believe that your spirit works through it, that your spirit is sharp and your spirit's able, Lord, to build things in us that nothing else can do. So have your way now, Father. Here we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Imagine a publisher is going to reissue several of the best-selling leadership books from the last 25 years. And you have been asked, being the graphic designer that you are, you've been asked to come up with cover images for these titles. Okay, You, you have to decide what image should go with these titles. I'll read you a few of the titles. Be thinking while I read. And these are real titles, bestsellers in the last 25 years. From Good to Great... The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. How to Win Friends and Influence People. The Effective Executive. The Definitive Guide to Getting the Right Things Done. These books speak of self-discipline, self-possession, efficiency, effectiveness, shrewdness, and above all, they promise success. That's why they sell. So what cover design would you choose to help catch a reader's eye? Maybe maybe a woman at her desk, poised, confident. Maybe a man who is scaling a mountain, looking strong. Maybe you'd put an eagle soaring high above its prey. Well, I doubt many of us would choose the image that Jesus does in Mark chapter 10, what he portrays true leadership as. It happens, it comes up during a scene you you may be familiar with. Let me remind us. In Mark 10, Jesus and his disciples are making their way to Jerusalem. They're walking there. Jesus has told them now three times, look, The Son of Man, me, when I get up to Jerusalem, you think I'm going to win a decisive victory. I want to prepare you. I will be betrayed, beaten, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, I will rise. He's saying to them, the Messiah will suffer. They're having trouble understanding this. He also has been turning from this vision of his own suffering and applying it to their discipleship. Anyone, Jesus says, who follows me, namely you people following me, you also like me, will suffer. You need to take up your cross and deny yourself. He's trying to drive this message home. He brings it up for a third time in Mark 10, verses 32 through 34. Just prior to our passage, he said once again, I will be spit on, beaten, and killed. Now, 
Two of his disciples, James and John, they're brothers. They respond to this teaching in, in what seems like an impossibly obtuse and embarrassingly shameless question. Verse 37. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. They want to be next to Jesus when he sets up his geopolitical throne. They're asking for the highest positions of rank. Think vice president, secretary of state. We've put our time in as aides during the campaign. As you get inaugurated, we simply thought we'd cut to the chase. Jesus, we want positions of power. That's why we've been doing this with you. Now, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach the 12 a lesson about leadership in his kingdom. He's trying to teach them that it won't look like you think leadership looks. It won't look like how leadership and power work in the world. So he says in verse 42 through 44, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, think Romans, Greeks, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Then in verse 45, Jesus throws the cover image on and shocks us. He says, do you want to get the point? Do you want to know what this looks like? Verse 44, for even so the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 44 is about Jesus' crucifixion. That's what it means when he says the Son of Man will be given as a ransom. Jesus is setting forth his crucifixion as the illustration for his leadership lesson. So, Jesus is not setting forth a picture of leadership that looks like Rocky Balboa. You know, arms up, victorious, chiseled chest, power, control, victory. Instead, he offers a picture of a man with his arms pinned to a beam, head slumped, blood dripping out of his water out of his body blood and water it's a picture not of victory in the world's eyes but defeat not of self-possession but of the loss of control jesus says to his disciples this is a picture of leadership a crucified man and i simply want to ask with you today do you want to lead like that Would you know how? Or perhaps better, do you know the sweetness of quitting trying to be Rocky Balboa so you can look like Jesus Christ? Do you know the freedom of becoming a servant leader? It requires, I think, a regular daily transformation that could be stated as simply as this. We have to transform we have to change, we have to move from self to servant, moment by moment, day by day, from self 
to servant. And I think this passage gives us a pattern how. Let me walk us through it. Let me suggest three ways I think Scripture here is telling us how to go from being a self to being a servant. So first, the first thing we see has to do with the heart. You might say it has to do with the reorientation of the heart. This comes up in verses 35 through 37. What is exposed in the request of James and John, this is verses 35 and 37, what's exposed is their heart. So immediately prior to this, I alluded to this a moment ago, in verses 33 through 34, Jesus has said, look, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is verse 33. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death Deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now listen to the detail, verse 34. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And on the third day he will rise. Here's how James and John respond to this. Jesus says, I'm going to be spit on. Verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and said to him, Teacher, this is right after this. We want you to do for us whatever we ask you. It's pretty bold. Verse 36, Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now in Matthew's account of this scene, it's actually the mother of James and John who speaks the request with her son. She kneels before Jesus and brings them forward. But, but whoever says it, what you need to understand is this is a family affair. James and John are sons of Zebedee. Zebedee had a fishing business in northern Israel in Galilee. They are two of the first disciples called. They leave their father in his boats to run his business with his other servants. And we know from the rest of the Gospels that their mother follows Jesus as well. So you picture this family moving along. They had a nice business. And they are sacrificing greatly to cast their lot with this messianic rabbi. Now, what's happening here is, although they've been sacrificing, they just want to make sure this is going to pay off. Jesus, can we just, there's there's a lot of people following. There's this 12. There's all these crowds. We just want to make sure you remember, we signed up really early. And we've been right on the inner circle. Now, before we call the request ridiculous, it is presumptuous. I want you to hear something Jesus has said just before this that's recorded in Matthew. Right before this, he said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's Matthew 19, verse 28. So it's not ridiculous for them. There will be structures of power in the kingdom. The disciples will be given thrones. It's just that they're they're still caught up in this misunderstanding about the timing of things and the nature of the arriving kingdom. They think a geopolitical kingdom will come immediately, but what actually is going to happen is a spiritual reality is breaking into the world that will slowly, subtly affect the temporal and physical structures. God will move by winning hearts, not necessarily geopolitical territories. But there's there's more than misunderstanding going on here. Along with misunderstanding, what's really exposed here that I think we're meant to notice are misguided motives. After nearly three years of following Jesus, 
of, of watching his sacrificial leadership, of listening to his teaching, after three years, this, this self-seeking pride just burst forth onto the surface. It's, it's almost embarrassing. And, and before we would pit James and John as worse than the others, just prior to this in Mark 9 verse 34, we found that the disciples were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. What this episode warns us of, and it's relevant for all of us, is that we can do good things for bad reasons. And I think some of the people in, in our world who look the saintliest could be the most rotten. And, and some of the people that we notice the least, they are the most unimpressive people you've never heard of, are the mightiest in the kingdom. And what this, I think, is, is showing us is that the shift from self to servant does not begin outwardly. Friends, don't think to become a servant. The first thing you need to do is sign up for more things to do to serve. The first thing you need to do is self-examination. It begins in the heart, in a reorientation of the heart where it pivots away from self-seeking for its own glory towards others for the sake of of God's glory. So let me suggest at this point in the sermon, I, look, I think it's really hard to know your own motives. And quite frankly, I think we always have mixed motives, right? If you can have 51% good, 49% bad motives, that's not a bad day, all right? It's hard to have perfectly good motives. But I think this is a great warning. I mean, James and John are towering figures. John writes the Gospel of John. He's the beloved disciple. He writes three letters. He writes Revelation. And here he is. We see part of his heart actually wanted to rule. So here's two things I, can, I think we should do for our own hearts to orient them towards others. Two things, very practical. Number one, I think every now and then you should ask yourself probing questions like this. How do I react when people don't notice the acts of service I do? How do I feel when no one thanks me for serving at my church or serving at the office? Why do I want to lead a small group rather than just being in a small group? Am I willing to do the things at the office or at home or at church that no one will ever see, let alone thank me for? And as we probe these things, what we're finding out is if, is if we actually are leading others to serve ourselves or leading ourselves in such a way that we're ready to serve others. Second, so after probing questions, this is something, again, I think it's really practical. I think you can begin your day praying service-oriented prayers. It looks like this. We all have people we interact with during the day. Could be spouses, kids, parents, schoolmates, people at work. And there's ways your hearts react, like immediately, right? There's, people are difficult. They're demanding. And you kind of walk into the world with all these gaping needs and wants and desires, right? And you're banging into everybody else's needs and wants and desires. And so it's easier to be critical and to want to take than it is to want to serve. So in the morning, take a few of the people in your mind's eye who you know you will see and say their names to the Lord one by one and say, Lord, please, today, would you reorient 
my attention, direct my attention to how we, you and me, God, how we are going to serve them. Lord, show me. Maybe it's a word of encouragement. Maybe it's I thank them for something. Maybe it's I don't take the nicest parking spot. Maybe it's I'm a little slower. I, Lord, just show me how I can serve them. And I think as you do that, you will begin to see a slow, regularly needed reorientation of your heart from self to servant. That's the first thing. It starts in the heart. Second, along with this reorientation of the heart, servant leadership requires the embrace of costliness. In verses 38 through 40, Jesus responds to their request to sit at his right and left hand, and he brings up a cup of sorrow and a baptism of woe. Let me read this for you. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. How often do you think God wants to say that to us when we pray for things? Lord, please let this happen. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. What he means at the end there is that the positions in the kingdom are not things you work hard and can earn right now. That these are foreordained realities that the God the Father has in mind. But more to the point. What Jesus is saying here is that for those who want to lead in his kingdom, they need to understand that it's going to require embracing costliness. He brings up a cup. The cup was often an image in the Bible. Um, it could speak of God's blessing, but it also often spoke of the wrath of God, his judgment. So we read in the prophet Jeremiah, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Now remember Jesus' prayer just a little bit later in Mark 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for me. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The baptism Jesus is talking about here I think is a metaphor for his immersion into the will of God that will require suffering for him in this season. So Jesus is simply reminding us that if you want to pivot towards servanthood, don't be naive. He's saying this is going to be costly. Don't be surprised when it's harder than you think. Now, I don't think this is accidental. You know, I, I don't think what, what Jesus is saying is, look, I wish it wasn't the case, but in a fallen world, it's inevitable that when you follow God, it's going to be hard. I don't think he means that. I think he means something way deeper. I think he's getting at strategy here. You know, all these leadership books that our world is awash with are filled really with strategy. That's what they're about. Here's a strategy to be successful. And they teach us really helpful things about time management, about how to manage others, about how to motivate people by answering the why question before the what question, how to be efficient. But leadership within the kingdom of God also and more deeply employs a radically counterintuitive strategy. It's all across the Bible. God works through weakness, 
smallness, foolishness, and hardship. Why? Well, let me set Paul forth as an example. St. Paul, as far as we can tell, was a very gifted young man and very ambitious. He, he was, in every sense of the word, word, moving into significant leadership among the Jewish people in his day. He was extremely well-educated. He clearly had been gifted in school. He said he was excelling beyond his peers in the traditions of his fathers. And when God calls him, God doesn't ask Paul to turn his brain off, but he radically reorients him so there's places and ways where Paul, rather than leaning on his intelligence, has to look like a fool. Rather than arriving in strength, he has to tremble in weakness. The prime example of this is the church in Corinth. Corinth was a popular city in the ancient world that prized Greek wisdom. And Paul, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, when he's writing his letter to them, he says, look, Corinthians, you're really wise, but don't forget that the message of the cross, that God wins by being crucified, remember, it's foolishness to people. It's folly. And then Paul goes on to say, in fact, Corinthians, remember that God using you is God employing things that are foolish and weak. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many were of noble birth. This is 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27. I want you to hear, here's God's strategy. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now why does God do this? I don't think this is, God does this because he doesn't want us to use intelligence or have good arguments. I think what he's saying is the deeper spiritual battles going on, they need a battering ram a lot stronger than human wisdom. So what happens, and here's the strategy, when a human being has to stop leaning on their own intelligence or their own strength or their own emotions, they realize, I can't do it here. I can't make a strong enough argument to convince them. I don't have the courage to do this. And God, I just don't want to look like a fool. I want to look smart, but you're making me look like a fool. When these things are happening, a great shift happens inside a person from leaning on human power to leaning on divine power. Do you understand that? Have you ever experienced that? It's kind of like, okay, Lord, I got to shut this engine off and turn that one on. And that's where it's almost like the way a branch attaching to a tree needs to be wounded so that the sap can flow through. It's like in that wound of weakness, the power of God begins to pulsate in a deeper way. You know, I experienced this personally um, right after college. I was a business major in college. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I wasn't worth the money being spent on me when I was in college. And I, ha I had an opportunity to do this neat internship at, at one of the world's greatest, biggest companies. It was just an internship, nothing too fancy. But I got to move up to New York and do this internship. It's a business world. By the end of college, however, I was feeling very drawn to ministry. And I had, I had job opportunities at this business that seemed very normal, right? I could use strengths. I'm a nice guy. I'm going to work hard. This will work. But I had this other opportunity to work for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in inner city Philadelphia, where there was no FCA presence. And the Lord led me into that. And I'm not trying to sound like a hero here. This, I was pathetic the whole way through. But 
So I'm working for FCA, okay, in, in West Philadelphia, and it is a disaster. Like, no fruit. I can't get Bible studies started. I can't find Christian coaches. I'm walking around the city, don't know where to go. I just can get no traction. So I'm always feeling defeated. I just got done college, right? And I'm trying to raise a salary. I can't raise it. And so I began to find myself, and I know you're not supposed to tell people when you fast, so just bear with me. I began to, 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 to experiment with fasting on Wednesdays for lunch. And it was more like, I won't eat burgers, I'll have a smoothie. You know, it was real lame fasting. <laughs> and, and, but I had never, I had never tried that before. And the reason was, because I was like, God, I have to meet a Christian at West Philadelphia High School to start an FCA huddle or I will fail at my job. And I have no idea how it's gonna happen. I'm gonna go in there, I'm gonna go through the security thing and I'm just gonna ask, are there any Christian coaches? And I would fast and pleading with God to help me. Now outwardly, it didn't look like a fruitful year, but I had to lean into a totally different type of power. So friends, when, when you're called to serve the Lord and you are called to do this, do not be surprised when it's really costly, emotionally, intellectually, publicly, privately. But see in that cost, being a light bulb, oh, this strategy's at work. He's trying to get me off human fuel onto divine fuel. I get it, Lord. This is what Paul learned. It's all over his correspondence in First and Second Corinthians. That's the second thing. You want to pivot from self to servant? Reorient your heart towards others embraced a, and embrace a strategy called weakness. Third, finally, um, Jesus wants his servant leaders not to be passionless and not to be without ambition. He wants them to have a new, baptized, deeper ambition. He wants us to have a cross-shaped ambition. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, brilliant, devastating man. I think he was wrong, but he was smart. He despised the central symbol of Christianity, which is a cross. To him, it spoke of passivity and weakness, the power strategy of the weak. It was an enticing, toxicating, overwhelming, undermining power. The cross was the sign of a deadening, life-denying religion devoid of all energy and vitality. For Nietzsche and others, the cross is what weak people cling to because they don't have the strength to exert real power. I think Jesus is saying the exact opposite here. I think he's saying the cross is where real ambition and real power start. This is why in verse 45, Jesus sets forth his own death. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus sets himself forth as the pattern. You know, the primary thing about the cross is on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. If you don't get that, you don't get Christianity. But after paying the penalty, the cross is then set forth as a pattern, a model. This is how you should live. It's the patterning of proper ambition for us. And here's how this works. The cross weans us off what I would call need-based ambition in order to connect us to love-based ambition. Here's the difference. I think most of our natural ambition as fallen people, if we could really plumb the depths of it, is rooted in our own needs. 
Why are you working so hard? Because I'm super insecure. Why do you want to make first chair in the symphony? Because I couldn't handle being second chair. Right? Why are you, why are you serving? Why are you doing all this? Why are you so ambitious? Because I want to look great. That's why I help people. That's why I'm a rector. Right? Got a huge ego I'm lugging up here to impress you with. That's human ambition. And it's always there. It's need-based ambition. And if you need people, you can't really freely serve them. So what Jesus models in his death on the cross is love-based ambition. You see, Jesus doesn't come and die for us because he needs us. It's not like the triune God is in heaven, in perfect communion for eternity, and the Son says to the Father, you know, I love this fellowship, but man, I'm lonely. I, I just, I can't live unless there's more people to come love me. God doesn't have needs like that. Instead, there's this perfect, secure love that by its own nature overflows in order to selflessly share itself with others. So Jesus dies for us, not out of his neediness for us, out of his utter love for his Father and his incredible love for us. And what he's asking us to do in becoming a servant is simply this. It's not to figure out how we can love people better on our own. It's asking how can we simply become a conduit through which Jesus' massive, selfless, serving love can pass through us and meet others. So let me give you an image for how this works. Um, this is something I do um, that you could try. This is applying verse 45 to a particular situation. You're interacting with a person. And you just, you don't have the emotions in you to want to serve. I mean, you're tired. They don't deserve it, you know. And you can picture right over their shoulder, in your mind's eye, picture a hill with a man walking up the hill lugging a cross. And at the top of the hill, he turns, and it's Jesus. And he's looking at you, and he's looking at them. He's looking at you, looking at them. And he slams his cross in the ground, and he climbs up on it and spreads out his arms. And he says to you, this is what I'm doing for them. This is what I'm doing for them. And I know they're a lot worse than you even think they are. Would you let this love by the Holy Spirit be poured into your heart and simply overflow? Even if you can only give them a drop. Even if all you can give them is a smile. All you can give them is a thank you. All you can give them is a little invitation to church. If that's all you can give them, please for my sake, share with them this love because I am here to serve them. Remember Jesus' great image of this moving towards Holy Week is when he washes his disciples' feet. You know, there's a parable about his return where it says the Son of Man will come and will find certain people at the wedding banquet and he will actually serve them. Jesus wants to serve us, not just at the cross, but continually. It's amazing. And he wants us to let his ambition to share God's massive love, he wants us to let that fuel our ambition and share it with others. I'll just close with, with a story. Um, it's Orphan Sunday. I'll say more about this at announcements. And in Orphan Sunday, we think about God's heart for, for some of the least of these. And a lot of families in our church have jumped into this ministry and, you know, foster care, adopting, supporting families who are doing these things. And there's one family who did this for the first time recently. They adopted a little child. 
a little baby. And um, I got to be at the house once with the little baby with their own kids. And, and they were scared to do it. I mean, it's really scary. And, and it actually went really well. Um, and their kids fell in love with this child, and they did. Then the time came when it was time for the little child to go back to their biological family. And what this person in the church told me was they were not prepared for how gut-wrenchingly painful it was going to be to then say goodbye to this child they fell in love with and to watch their kids have to say goodbye. And their, their point to me was, this has been so great and it's been so costly all at the same time. And I thought to myself, you are right in the center of God's will. And in that wound, Jesus is inviting you to feel his woundedness for the loss. He's inviting you to depend on his father to love them, not your own love for them. He's inviting you to a whole world of embracing the costliness of moving from a self that protects itself to a servant that gives itself for others. Friends, I pray this would be a mark of our church. Try it this week. Try it tomorrow. You'll be shocked at how liberating it actually is. Lord Jesus, we say yes to this invitation and demand that if we desire anything among our brothers and sisters or our community of power or prestige, that we instead would say yes to being a servant and a slave of all. Amen.